Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting and blasting out on KHFX 1140 AM in Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I'd like to welcome you once again to tonight's broadcast. And I would once again like to remind you that this is Friday night, so it's time for some Friday night highlights where we go through some of my previous work at CorbettReport.com. And I think everyone understands and knows the famous dictum that the unexamined life is not worth living. In fact, what is this life at all if we don't take the time to examine and understand it? So on that note, tonight we're going to be doing some philosophical exploration, picking up from our conversation earlier this week with Dr. Walter Block. And as I said on last night's program, that that broadcast elicited a great deal of opinion and, and comments and emails and even some phone calls uh, from people about that issue and the issues that he was raising, especially, of course, the abortion issue. But as I said on that broadcast, I am a sucker for philosophical conversations. In fact, back in my university days, I was a philosophy minor in my undergraduate days. So absolutely, I'm very much interested in philosophy. And I try not to let that uh, that show through too much because I think there is such a thing as uh, weighting the scales too much towards the philosophical ruminations and not enough towards the practicalities of what's actually taking place. So I hope to be able to balance that in some way. And uh, the only gauge I I have for that is what I personally find to be interesting. So so I hope and I, I, I believe that I'm amassing a number of listeners who are along the same lines as myself now, and, and hopefully uh, people don't find this too tedious. But I would uh, like to get into some of the the things that I've done over the years at CorbettReport.com along philosophical lines. And once again, as a way of self-justification or justification in general for why this is important at all when we're facing such dire things as the possibility of World War III starting in Iran or the economic collapse that's uh, coming about in Europe and threatening to take down the global economy as a whole and all of these other monumental things that are facing us, what's the point of uh, sitting back and, and doing some idle philosophical exploration on various matters. Well, I would, of course, argue that it is not idle at all, that in fact, this goes to the very heart of what we're doing and what we're facing. And this is something that I've been trying to stress uh, for years now uh, through the work that I do at CorbettReport.com. And just, to, uh, just to, to show that, I'd like to take a little excerpt from an interview that was done by Claire Swinney from a blog called Web of Evidence. Way back in September of 2009, so uh, going on three years ago now, she interviewed me for her blog, and one of the questions that she put to me was, what is the most important revolution for the sake of humanity, in your opinion? And I responded at the time by saying, the important revolution is the only revolution that will ever achieve anything, and that is the revolution of mind. Because unless we understand the system that is enslaving us, and unless we know who our enemy is, and unless we know what they expect us to do, we will never be able to put up a resistance that matters. That was what I said nearly three years ago, and I stand by it absolutely 100% today. The only revolution that matters is the revolution of the mind. And that's an important point and one that I really do believe in. Uh, I know there are people out there who think that this is all just airy-fairy, hippy-dippy, philosophical speculations and, and doesn't amount to anything. But on the contrary, I think that getting stacking up on guns and, and just getting ready for some big fight is definitely not going to get us anywhere. And I would venture to put forth that no violent revolution in history has fundamentally changed the system that we're living in. There have been moments when people have taken up arms and, and taken back some powers to themselves, but 
ultimately the the people that we're facing, the people in the new world order, the people who are puppeteering the system that we're living in are thinking not just years ahead, but generations ahead. And they are the social engineers who are manipulating things on a mass scale, as we've demonstrated here on this broadcast before. And unless we start to understand that this is a, a battle for your mind, well, we're going to, to lose, unfortunately. So on that note, let's start getting into some philosophy right after these messages. Welcome back, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're digging through the Corbett Report archives for conversations that I've had in the past on a philosophical bent. We're going to start off tonight with a very interesting conversation that I had with Douglas Lane back in September of 2010. And Doug Lane is an author known for some of his science fiction works. He's also written nonfiction works like Pick Your Battle, uh, talking about his urban foraging and uh, the uh, concept of abundant cities and the idea of growing food everywhere in a city instead of just using uh, the, the space to grow meaningless trees or meaningless grass, using it to grow fruit that people can eat and things like that. Some very interesting conversation overall, but we're going to listen to a section of that conversation where we talk about the situationist philosophy. Basically, a group of avant-garde philosophers in 1950s France who came together with this idea for a revolutionary philosophy centered around wandering around cities and trying to create new maps based on psychogeography and, and pointing to the idea of the spectacle, how everything in our society has become a spectacle, as if everything is there to be watched and consumed in that way, but that we have no influence on the world around us. Uh, hearkening back to the advent of television and the fact that everything increasingly started to become images and everything was presented to us as images that could not be influenced. Well, how did that affect our underlying psychology and the way that we actually interact with the world? Uh, absolutely engaging, fascinating conversation. So I hope you'll listen to the whole thing. Here's Douglas Lane. Well, you know, they were dealing with the arrival of television um, and they were dealing with uh, uh, an ascendant America at that time, and and the pop and popular culture as we know it was being born around the time that they were starting their projects. So it wasn't like it was invisible to people then. But now, in fact, maybe the fact that it wasn't so pervasive made it more visible to people then. Because now you talk about the spectacle, and you know, it's either people don't see it at all because it's like the air they breathe or you're just talking about the most obvious thing in the world. Why even bother to mention it? <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. And we've been under, I think, a type of psychic attack for the last 50 years where it went from the 1960 presidential debate, which many people say was won because Kennedy was more telegenic uh, <laughs> right, to having right. an actual actor as the president in the 1980s <laughs> right. and to having, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger as the governor of California and then topping it all off with the Obama campaign of hope and change, which actually convinced people that Obama was going to descend from the clouds and, uh, I guess, I don't know, touch them and yeah. they'd be healed from all their worldly cares or something. Well, I mean, if you scratch the surface with people who were Obama supporters, um, maybe people who are older than 20, um, to what you find are people who have uh, only a rough idea of what FDR did, thinking that um, Obama was going to be the next FDR. Um, and he has done nothing in that direction at all. 
But um, I think that is a, a kind of a, a feeling that dies hard. You know, it was a, a hope that, while mostly gone, is is still kind of floating around out there amongst diehard Democrats and liberals. But yeah, he was certainly he wasn't a disappointment to me, but he was he certainly lived up to my worst expectations. Yes, unfortunately. Well, I exactly. I I think you m- might even overestimate the the sort of political philosophy of the the diehard Obama supporters. I don't think there was even that much to it. I think it was truly just a, a generated phenomenon that was just a spectacle. It was it was completely in the realm of the spectacle and had nothing to do with political philosophy at all. It was just vague terms that I guess pushed yeah. the right buttons at the right time. Yeah, I, you may be right. For for a good for a good portion of the people, but it certainly worked that way on television. Well, let's 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 Put it this way, if you were someone who thought that he was going to be the next FDR, you should have been disabused of that idea as soon as he supported the banker bailouts, as soon as he stepped forward and made sure that TARP went through against the will of the Congress. When he did that, he was exposing himself to have nothing in common, at least with the popular conceptions of FDR, right? Uh, He was siding with Wall Street over Main Street. He was going to take uh, the federal monies to prop up these private institutions. And, and what could have turned been money that could have been or resources that could have been turned towards maybe softening the blow of an economic recession or depression was instead, you know, turned over basically uh, to line the pockets of these the, the most wealthy individuals in our society. Well, exactly. And especially when it came out before the election when McCain and Obama appeared together to say, we, we both support the bailout and it's, it's great and it's going to save everyone. I think that was, um, should have been a defining moment for many people who didn't know the, the right. sort of bigger agenda. So the way the spectacle works is it doesn't just, it isn't like you're mindless. It's just like your thoughts don't relate to, they only relate to the image on the screen. So people somehow, despite that, held on to this notion that he was the next FDR and that once he got into office, he was going to do something different than what he had already done during his campaign. So I don't think that people didn't have any analysis at all. It's people who I knew did, but they just, they had had their feelings or hopes for him as to what he would do that were completely detached from anything that he did because what was most important about him, the the thing that those hopes were based on was his image and not, his policies or, or actions. And, you know, this is the whole thing about running on basically on personality rather than, and this, it's what's behind the tea party movement too, because, uh, you know, you have a few figures who are kind of charismatic in the tea party movement, but more than that, you have images of populist rage, but they don't attach themselves to any actual policy or politics. And to the extent they do attach themselves to politics, just like Obama, they're actually usually the reverse of what people want. You know? I, I agree completely with with that in, in the way that the Tea Party is now. But I think that the Tea Party actually stemmed from the 9-11 Truth Movement and then was picked up by Ron Paul, which I think did have a, a sort of revolutionary political mo- moment to it. And unfortunately, I think it was co-opted by the Republicans. But well, see, I, was, I kind of followed the 9-11 Truth Movement. I, um, when did... When did the Tea Party 
start emerging from the truth movement. It was either 2005 or 2006. I believe it was 2006, and Boston 9-11 Truth had a uh, uh, throwing the 9-11 Commission report in the um, Boston Harbor, and they called it the Boston Tea Party. And uh, from that, it became sort of an annual oh. movement. Yeah, you know, I was aware. I remember when that happened. I just never put that together with... Because once Glenn Beck started being exactly well, party, I just figured it was that he was perverting exactly, and and that was obviously a perversion of of it. But it it stemmed from the nine eleven truth movement thing to to becoming a Ron Paul support thing, which obviously there was some overlap overlap between those two movements in the uh, two thousand eight election, and and from that it was then corrupted by the yeah. Glenn Beck's and all that. The, the, the thing about the nine, let's talk about the nine eleven truth movement for a minute, <laughs> because I think that the nine eleven truth movement itself can be a kind of spectacle. Uh, not that I definitely am uh, someone who does not believe the official story about nine eleven, but that because even before nine eleven happened, there was a conspiracy industry. There was a conspiracy theories as a form of entertainment uh, that already existed that it was pretty easy for what should have been a political movement which um, had legs and demands, you know, wanted demands beyond just an official investigation or demands beyond even what happened on 9-11, but basically wanting to change the way politics works so that these kinds of conspiracies could never arise. Demands for transparency, demands... Uh, for decentralization of power, um, uh, for curbing police excesses and, and military excesses, for changing foreign policies, all of these things should have been, um, and which are to some degree part of the 9-11 truth movement, but what is, is ascendant with the 9-11 truth movement are is this image of the conspiracy, which you can find out about, just like you can find about out about you know the right kind of uh, basically, it's kind of a snake oil approach to politics. It's, it's surface and no deeper. Um, and I think that the thing is, once you start going into any one of these subjects, you're going to run the danger of turning into your image, turning into a spectacle just by trying to engage it. So I'm not like pointing fingers at any 9-11 truth activist, but I do think that there was a, a whole dynamic, there's a whole dynamic in industry around conspiracy theories, which... Uh, is spectacular. Right. I, I understand completely what you're saying, and sometimes I even wonder about uh, the Corbett Report and what I'm doing and whether people are accepting it as some form of entertainment rather than, than just an example of what people should, I think, be doing and trying to spread information. And right. I, I do worry about that, really, sometimes, and I, I wonder if it's even worth continuing if people do just expect, expect a sort of weekly podcast as as something they can tune into and it'll be, you know, entertaining for an hour and then they can go back to their daily life. Well, and you know, then, and no yeah. matter who you are, you can do that. I mean, if you're Noam Chomsky or you're, or you're Doug Lang with the Diet Soap podcast, you know, it's very easy to turn uh, your politics into an identity and then turn that identity into an entertainment which you just consume. So mm. you are an anarchist, and how do you know you're an anarchist? Well, you read the right books, you wear the right T-shirts, you, <laughs> you know, exactly. You, exactly. you listen to the right podcast, um, and it doesn't have any impact on 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 how you actually live. And so, and there again, what I'm talking about is this larger conspiracy of the spectacle, which is so pervasive, which uh, which we have to think hard about 
getting around. And I don't think easy answers like, oh, I just won't do the Corbett report. It's, uh, you know, obviously that's not a good answer or I won't do the Diet Soap podcast. That's not a good answer. Um, but I, I frankly feel like for a good portion of times, I'm not even, I'm not even really asking the right questions uh, about these things. So I, I think one of the good things about podcasting is that it gets people like you and me together to ask questions of each other and to try to think in, in new ways we wouldn't be able to in ways we wouldn't be able to think if we weren't talking to each other if we were just on our own. We bombed them all. White phosphorus and napalm too. Bunker busters, daisy cutters, cruise missiles, be fifty twos. We bombed them all for their prosperity. Friends, we're back here on Corbett Report Radio tonight, exploring some philosophical conversations from the CorbettReport.com archives. Once again, all of the interviews featured in tonight's episode are available from CorbettReport.com, and the links to all of these will be available in tonight's show notes at CorbettReport.com slash radio. So once again, thank you for tuning in, and I hope that you found that conversation with Doug Lane that we just featured before the break to be as intellectually engaging as I found it, uh, certainly provocative, some some of the ideas there, and, and I think people might have a knee-jerk reaction to some of his ideas, but I think it's, it behooves one to start thinking about and interrogating some of our most fundamental assumptions and really thinking about where they come from, why we hold them, and how we can even improve, because there is no doubt that we, there is always room for improvement when it comes to any aspect of our lives, including our intellectual and philosophical development. And on that note, the question then becomes, well, how do we how do we learn new things? How do we how do we educate ourselves? How do we educate others about important issues? Certainly, that's one of the fundamental questions that I've been grappling with on the Corbett Report since its inception. And to that end, I had a very fascinating conversation with our old friend Denis Rancourt back a couple of years ago. And you might remember he was uh, uh, featured on a very interesting previous episode of this broadcast where we talked about the hierarchy of pain. And I would suggest you go back to listen and re-listen to that uh, interesting broadcast. But a couple of years ago, I had uh, Rancourt on the Corbett Report to talk about education and the philosophy of education known as pedagogy. Basically, how do people learn and how can they actually learn to be revolutionary thinkers? Is that a, is that an oxymoron? Well, of course, Denis Rancourt had his own battle with the University of Ottawa and eventually lost his tenure, lost his professorship there, um, had it stolen away because he was doing some really radical things in his classroom. Again, more on that from his uh, website, activistteacher.blogspot.com. Let's listen to a section of that interview talking about the philosophy of education. Well, I think learning, you know, uh, the, 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 the discoveries of pedagogy that were well described are fairly old. I mean, the, the, a, a lot of this stuff was developed and written about very clearly in the 60s and 70s. Um, I think the most influential pedagogy is that of Paulo Ferreira. Uh, he wrote a, a landmark book that was entitled Pedagogy of the Oppressed or uh, Pedagogy of Liberations, others call it. In, in, in North America, we call it uh, critical pedagogy. Um, so th- this was a landmark book that explained um, how true learning occurs and how it needs to be based in, in an environment such as ours where we're subjected to a dominance hierarchy. Uh, true learning needs to be based in uh, authentic rebellion. In other words, the student needs to discover within themselves uh, an authentic rebellion 
Otherwise, they will um, fall apart and, and go into self-destruction and, and all kinds of behaviors, or they'll adopt the ideology and destroy themselves that way, the ideology of the system. So this, this authentic rebellion is what motivates what Paulo Ferreira called the praxis of liberation. And uh, by praxis, he means um, that you are acting to fight against your own oppression, and that action causes the system to respond. There's a backlash. So it informs you about the true nature of the system. That causes you to analyze what's going on, to reflect. Uh, because you're being subjected to this backlash, your reflection is particularly keen. And you're particularly, uh, you, you learn very quickly under those circumstances. And uh, then uh, you, you, you think of what your next action is going to be to protect yourself and to push your liberation further. So this is called the praxis of liberation. And um, uh, Paulo Ferreira explained that, you know, this, this is how true learning occurs. And he, he applied this uh, to teach literacy to uh, peasants in Latin America with, with great success. And he developed this whole pedagogy around that. So he found that the greatest barrier uh, when it comes to this kind of learning is that the slave, um, whether you're uh, talking about wage slavery or actual slaves that he was working with in Latin America in the 70s, um, the, the, the biggest barrier to learning is that the slave um, does not acknowledge that they're a slave. They don't recognize it. Um, they will say things like, we need the master, he protects us, he organizes our work, where would we be without you know this structure, basically? So um, the pedagogy involves exercises that uh, catalyze an awareness about this condition that the slaves are being subjected to and then initiates um, uh, this praxis that I was describing. So I think that's the most powerful pedagogical theory that's ever been developed. And it's the one that I have been trying to apply for years in my classrooms. So I've been applying it in a first world context where um, it, it, it's about uh, what is being oppressed or suppressed from us is our political agency. So um, students and members of society are not allowed to have influence uh, in society. Um, it, it, the, the structures are such that it's completely removed from us. And therefore, that, that is a strong uh, type of oppression for middle classers, let's say, in the first world, since that's the category I'm in. And since Paulo Ferreri explained, and I believe this, that you, you can, when you're fighting uh, uh, for justice, you can only fight your own oppression. So you have to fight from where you're at, from your class position, given the advantages you have, you fight that hierarchy of dominance against your own oppression. And all of those struggles coalesce and, 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 and cross classes eventually as you bring that dominance pyramid down. So, um, by applying that, I would apply it in the classroom to students. Now, there, there were even homeless people in, in some of my classrooms because I would open it to the community. So I was trying to find ways that everyone could fight their own oppression and how we could share stories about it and so on um, in, in order to learn what we needed to learn to do that.
Welcome back, friends, to Corbett Report Radio. Tonight, we are here going through CorbettReport.com to look for some interesting conversations that I've had in the past on philosophical matters, somewhat along the lines of the conversation that we had with Dr. Walter Block earlier this week, just trying to examine some of these subjects and really drill down to the core of what they are, because once again, I do think it is important to stay informed of the events that are happening in the quote-unquote real world and all of the minutia and the uh, the geopolitical wranglings and all of the, those other things. But I think it's important to have a basic conceptual groundwork through which to understand what those uh, events are and how they're taking place and, and to look for some other ideas of, of how we can truly fundamentally alter our perceptions of, of the situation that we're living in so that we're better able to handle those types of, well, those things as they occur. So let's move along to another fascinating area. Uh, we're going to look at the philosophy of science, and we're going to listen to an interview with Jerome Rivets, who's a, a, a professor of the philosophy of science and history of science, and he was so for decades. He's at jerryrevets.co.uk, and he first came to my attention in the wake of the ClimateGate scandal back in 2009, but he continues to write on very interesting elements of the problems of uncertainty in science. And his argument is essentially that there are certain inbuilt biases and tendencies in science as an institution or even as an industry, as it increasingly is, towards the idea that science is 100% certain, 100% accurate, and arrives at 100% truth, which creates problems when we look at inherently unpredictable systems like the climate and other such contentious topics. So last month I had him on CorbettReport.com to talk about uncertainty in science, and we had a very interesting discussion. Well, as I have written here and there, uh, when a student is going through learning science, um, you are given the understanding by your experience, it never need to be said, that for every scientific problem, there is just one correct answer, precise to several digits. You can go through probably right up into a PhD from elementary school, uh, never seeing a wrong answer in the book. In other words, if you don't get there is a right answer at the, uh, in, in the book, and if you don't get it, that's your problem, you are failing. Because in science, every problem has an answer, a correct, a one correct answer. And so, if you're on a very good PhD course, uh, you will learn, you know, that mistakes can happen and that you can try a line of research that leads you along for months and then you realize it's wrong. But uh, that is a luxury. I mean, I'm speaking here from experience because in my own PhD, this is what happened to me. Uh, but then in other PhD programs, you don't have the luxury of making mistakes, and so your supervisor ensures that you'll be given something to do which is pretty safe. In other words, there have been so many people before you doing the same sort of thing. Now you take the same techniques, extend it to something else. We're pretty sure it will work. You just have to learn how to twiddle the knobs a little bit, and then it's original research. You get your degree. So you then come out with a PhD, and you then go into the world, go into research, and you have never had the experience of error or failure. Uh, you've been very smart up to that point. You go into the world. You have never seen a failed problem. Now, 
obviously, once you're out there in the real world of research, <clears throat> then you start to learn at some point in some way that things can go wrong. But this is always uh, unfortunate because you've wasted time. You haven't got a publication for all that work. The temptation very strong, you know, to try another statistical test so that you do get a positive result. So you then get this mindset, which is so deep that it doesn't even have to be spoken, that if science always gets the right answers. And if I have done my quantitative data, I've put on my mathematical model, what can be wrong? And so then if having got my qualifications, I go to work in the world of finance and someone says, well, we need a model for this product. Oh, that's okay. So then you do this, you do that, you do this famous Gaussian copula, out come the numbers, and you can't imagine what can be wrong because you've never made a mistake before. You've never seen an error in science before. And so in the best of the world, they march into, as it were, the jaws of death and error. Now, uh, so the whole scientific system of knowledge is biased in favor of certainty, even without any corporate selfish interest pushing it that way. Uh, science accentuates the positive, eliminates the negative. And uh, when we now come into a period, you know, as I've talked about post-normal science, when facts are uncertain and values in dispute, etc., etc., people look at this and say, what are you talking about? That's not science. I said, okay, what is it? Uh, and so we are in the middle of, or not in the middle, we're at the beginning of a sort of revolution in scientific thought, where we scarcely have the tools to cope with the radical uncertainties that face uh, science and in the application. I mean, we can even take it back to climate. And I'm very careful now not to accuse anybody of malpractice or stupidity or anything like that. That's irrelevant. Um, what we do have, though, is the assumption that if we, if we can get some numbers, it's measuring something. Now, you know, I've just recently, after all these years, I've begun to think, well, what is climate? You see? Uh, climate is weather over a long period of time. Well, how long? See? And then various scholars, I mean, there's uh, Hans von Storch in Germany, there's Mike Hume in, in England, who've looked at this as well, what do we mean by climate? Climate is a very sort of humanistic sort of idea. It isn't pinned down by a set of measurements. And so whether the climate is changing, you have to then say, well, what do we mean by climate? And again, if you have been trained up as a puzzle-solving scientist, as Thomas Kuhn describes them, that sort of reflexive question is beyond you. You say, well, we all know what climate is. We measure it, you see. Well, how do we, well, when do we get the global mean temperature? So, well, what is the global mean temperature? Oh, well, blah, 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 you see. And it goes deeper and deeper into methodologies, which then themselves can be contested. And your average scientists who, as good, let's say, responsible citizens, know that there is a problem, they find all that stuff to be manufactured doubt. You see, what's the problem? We know there's a climate. We see these things happening, and science gives us certainty, bar probability stuff, you see. 
and all those other people, they're just like they're denying smoking kills. And then you have this tragic situation we're now in. And so as I say, as I'm working it out, even talking to you, I see the core is this belief that science gives us that security. All problems can be solved with one unique answer, precise to several digits. And that's why I feel philosophy of science is now very, very relevant. I think so, increasingly so, certainly in this world where, where things like climate science have become uh, such so central to a, a lot of government policies that threaten to, to really fundamentally change the fabric of our society in some ways. But uh, on that note, of course, let's, let's get into your most recent article about sociology of science, Keep Standards High, talking about the ways that technology can transform and are, already have transformed to some extent the scientific discourse and uh, some of the, I guess, the, the promises and pitfalls of that. Yeah. Well, uh, this is all brand new stuff, and uh, I think it's partly because of other interests of mine that I've picked up on the way that um, the new technology is transforming business practice, certainly transforming politics, that's obvious, uh, and now transforming business practice. And we see it's coming in at the fringes of science in all sorts of ways as uh, some obvious ways that you know digital material, digital media, are more uh, have many many advantages for information over paper media. However, you know there are lots of people who criticise science who say it has become a new religion. That scientists are a new priesthood. Now, of course, we know that this is not a very close analogy. It could be very dangerous to take it too literally. However, we can say that uh, in the advanced societies, um, yeah, a belief in a certain sort of world which is described by science rather than religion is now standard. It's by no means conquered the whole world, but this is what uh, is there in the parts of the world that are making it happen. Okay. Um, now, we also know that uh, to do science you need to have uh, a lengthy, expensive education. And even some years ago, I made this joke uh, that if, if you look at a, uh, a boy, poor boy coming up from the slums, uh, he has a better chance of being president of the United States of America than getting a Nobel Prize. Uh, because if you don't start early and have all the breaks, you're not going to make it into science, you're coming in too late. So although science is in many ways profoundly democratic, it's very democratic in its practice, certainly more than business. Uh, it is open to talents uh, to an exceptional degree. Still, science is part of what we might call the elite culture. And just as an aside, uh, I think a lot of the uh, motivation for the creationism debate, where, and I should say, I'm, I'm not a creationist, I think generally it's damaging, on the other hand, you can see it as a reaction by a culturally underprivileged and oppressed class. People who don't generally have access to elite education and the media of elite knowledge. And this is their reaction. You know, you won't take the Bible away from us. You've taken away everything else, but we still got the Bible. See? And so, yes, they are wrong, but they are coming from a place that's real. So that's a reminder that science is in some ways very democratic, in some ways not so democratic. 
Now, then we look at this democratization of the media of knowledge. Uh, and we see, I mean, you know, certainly all of the Arab world now, it's happening. We see an increasingly sophisticated, powerful, radical movement using social media quite effectively and ever more sophisticated and skilled way. So uh, the, 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 the terms of politics involving science at the moment as technique are changing fast. What I find most amusing is that one of the leading institutions in fostering this change is Stanford University, where if you look at the website for Liberation Tech, that is based at Stanford. Now, one would wonder what the original Leland Stanford would have said to find his university enlisted in the bloggers and people, but that's the way history goes. Now, uh, what we've seen, and this was, I think, the most important thing, uh, when with my friend and colleague, Sofio Fontovich, we developed the idea of post-normal science, we then talked about an extended peer community. Where there we had the idea of citizen scientists like notoriously in Lyme, Connecticut, or uh, Woburn, Massachusetts, who found a, uh, a problem that the official science establishment didn't want to know. And so they made their own science, uh, housewives epidemiology. Okay. But that was all very isolated. And at the time, it, it, it wasn't significant for science, maybe for public health, but not for science. Okay, the next stage, and I just learned from experience, the next stage, along comes ClimateGate and all these guys blogging. And I then begin to see, and this is where I dived in at some cost, uh, to sites like What's Up With That, or Judith Carey's site in particular, or uh, Roger Torbloke's site, people are having serious discussions. Now, there are doubtless sites out there where people are just mouthing off. You see. Here you have serious discussions enforcing a rule of civility. I mentioned this in the Nature paper. Uh, and where when people from the other side come in, they will be argued with, but always with consideration and courtesy. And real, critical, scientific discussion is taking place on these sites. I should also say that when some of the uh, more vigorous participants, I'm going to up with that, there's this great character, Willis Eschenbach, uh, who is always looking at everything. And when he gets it wrong, they tell him, you know, nobody says, well, Willis is one of us. Oh, no, they come in and say, Willis, you know, great stuff, but you made an elementary blunder, see? And so it is by no means back-scratching, see? Um, and then we see that there are more and more blogs all over the place. Uh, it, there are now the beginnings of significant amateur science of the sort we had a couple of hundred years ago. And all that is moving around. It's all sort of embryonic or nascent. Uh, what we haven't yet seen is you know, research being done outside the academies. Because, again, here, here's the information technology. Up to now, to do serious research, unless you chose your area quite carefully, frequently on something about safety and health. But if you want to do basic insider research, you had to have behind you 
millions and millions of dollars of capital, either in a lab or a library or a privileged access to those resources. Somebody out on the street couldn't do real research. They could do critical research, bits of local epidemiology, pollution, medicine, a little bit, health, you see, but not a real thing. Now, that barrier is beginning to go. It's only beginning to go. And also, the sort of open criticism that we've seen in the climate gate thing will be moving further into science. Now, what sort of effects it will have, I don't know. What we do know is that when you have an extension of democracy, it can be very rough, it can be destructive, be dangerous. See? Um, but in a way, it's going to happen. Now, uh, whether my two interests here, uncertainty on the one, uncertainty and ignorance on the one hand, and the extension of democracy into science will mesh together, I really don't know. The danger always is that the enthusiasts become radicals, become revolutionaries, and for them, you know, uh, uncertainty is also uh, a burden they don't want to carry. And you could then have a polarization um, of a pro and anti establishment science, which can be very damaging. That can happen. Welcome back to Corporate Report Radio, the closing minutes of another interesting week here on the broadcast. And tonight we've been going through CorporateReport.com to listen to some conversations on matters philosophical. And as I say, I hope that that doesn't over-interfere with the the coverage of, of all sorts of topics that we go through here. But I do think it's absolutely fascinating to really step back and look at our conceptual basis for and, and really explore and interrogate our assumptions and, and why we believe what we believe and trying to understand how we uh, come to understand and believe what we believe and all of those things, which, again, if we don't examine them, I think we are basically mentally and uh, intellectually crippling ourselves in a certain way. So I think it's always important to go back and question our assumptions and how we arrive at the knowledge that we think we have, etc., etc. And that's the realm of philosophy. So we do tend to look at that subject from time to time on CorbettReport.com and here on Corbett Report Radio. I have another interesting week of broadcasts lined up for next week with uh, chock full with guests from Monday to Wednesday. We have James Evan Pilato as usual on Thursday, Corporate Report highlights on Friday. So I hope you will stay tuned for next week's edition of this broadcast. And in the meantime, of course, CorbettReport.com still continues to be updated on pretty much a daily basis with new videos and new podcast episodes and new interviews and articles and other such things on a daily basis. And FukushimaUpdate.com also uh, updated on a daily basis with the latest from the unfolding unfortunate catastrophe here in northeastern Japan and the Fukushima area. 
So on that note, that's it for this week of broadcasts. Once again, I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I exist solely and and completely on the the goodwill of the people out there who subscribe to CorbettReport.com and help to keep this work going. And just as a reminder, uh, the, the latest Corbett Report DVD, the 2010 video archive compiling some of the best videos from CorbettReport.com from the year 2010 and putting it for the first time on DVD, that will be being released at the very beginning of March, March 1st and uh, that will coincide with the release of the next edition of the subscriber newsletter. So once again, if you want to subscribe to the Corbett Report newsletter, it's a monthly newsletter with uh, news analysis uh, and also a subscriber-only video from myself, yours truly, James Corbett, every month. For as little as 100 Japanese yen a month, that's about a buck fifty a month, you help to keep Corbett Report and all of this interesting discussion going. So once again, I thank you for all of your support out there. And once again, I hope that you will be able to uh, to join me and continue on this quest as we all continue to interrogate our assumptions. And you certainly won't agree with everything that everyone on this program says, but I certainly hope that it does make you think and make you interrogate your own assumptions. Because when we stop doing that is when we stop truly living. And on that note, take care, everyone. I'll see you next week.